when I was in New York, there were a lot of people that had an idea of California that was what you would probably conjure up more is like Southern California, the idea of beach towns and that.、Mm -hmm. So there weren't a lot of New Yorkers interested in in California when I was there, at least. And so that was definitely not my experience coming to San Francisco. That was San Francisco public defender and artist Matt Gonzalez. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Quick personal note: as I might have mentioned before, I moved to the city in 2000. It was sometime in 2003 that I first got interested in local politics. When I learned about an upstart campaign for mayor by a member of the Green Party, I was hooked. I ended up volunteering for Matt's campaign, and was there the rainy night in the Mission that he gave his concession speech after having narrowly lost in a runoff against Gavin Newsom. Eighteen years later, having him on this podcast is a very special occasion for me, and maybe that's the introduction for this one. Yeah, here's Matt. You know, I was born in a place called McAllen, Texas, and my parents still live there. My father is from Laredo, Texas, also on the border,、um, and my mother is from Jalisco, Mexico. Actually, moved to the northern part of Mexico、uh, to the area of Reynosa, Mexico, and Tamaulipas,、uh, the state there. And、um, but when I was born, my my family was actually living in Puerto Rico. My father.、Oh. Worked for a、uh, cigarette company,、uh, Brown and Williamson Tobacco. They're a、uh, subsidiary of British American Tobacco, and he's you know he was a salesman. Started kind of at the bottom and worked his way up into the into the executive hierarchy. But、uh, he was stationed in Puerto Rico, and he had this idea that he didn't want his、uh, kids born in Puerto Rico since we weren't Puerto Rican. Not、mm. he, he loved the place, but he just felt like. Hey, I want them to be born in the United States proper,、uh, and this was an idea he had. So my mother actually stayed with her family in northern Mexico, and my doctor was in McAllen, Texas, and the hospital there was where I was born. Okay.、Uh, and then I was baptized in Reynosa, Mexico, and then got on a plane.、Uh, I think back then you had to be 30 days old to, to fly in a plane, and so I didn't meet him right away.、Um, I have an older Sister, who's in Texas, I have a younger brother who's here in San Francisco, doing a lot of music recording.、Uh, he trained as a lawyer and he works as a paralegal slash secretary for a labor law firm here here in town. But his passion is music. Okay.、So、he's got bands and he also records. Worked with Jonathan Richman recently. So anyway, my 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 family moved around as my father got stationed to different places. So we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and、uh, Maryland, and Louisiana. Okay.、Uh, we got back to McAllen, Texas, and I started the sixth grade in McAllen, and they've been there ever since. Do you remember your time? You said Maryland and Louisiana, but if I'm not mistaken, Baltimore and New Orleans specifically, right? Yes. Do you remember either of those? I I have、um, affinities for both places. I've 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 spent a little bit of time in New Orleans as a kid growing up in Fort Worth. I had relatives, and then I lived out in Maryland,、uh, just just south of Baltimore,、um, in my kind of early adult life, and I'm I've just always been fascinated by both places. I think they're both pretty unique cities in the United States. Do you 
Uh, yeah, I do remember. Um, in New Orleans, um, I was just starting, I was probably about four years old when we got there. And I still hadn't uh, learned how to speak uh, a language. Uh, my first language was starting to be Spanish. And then, um, but I was kind of slow to, you know, to, to get those skills and, and then had to pivot to learn English. So um, I remember those days, you know, of trying to learn the language and, and the challenge of working with a tutor and things like that. Right. And um, uh, in, in Maryland, um, I have a lot of memories of kind of skateboarding as a kid. That was a big passion of mine. Yes. Um, yeah, a lot of fond memories. You know, we, we, we couldn't do any tricks. I mean, we were all yeah. just like bombing hills and doing crazy uh, antics like that. But uh, looking back on it, you know, it was just the early days where you got a skateboard in a mail order catalog. Right. And there was no, there was no skate shop. There was no place to learn about this stuff no youtube videos or anything you know yeah just like plastic boards and i, I feel like or wooden maybe and they little attach, thin boards yeah and attach roller skate wheels to the bottom of them and just yeah but i mean hey bombing hills there's nothing especially in, in, right. the, in the town <laughs> we live in that's that's a thing um so that that's kind of the 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 gist of your your memories of, of both places you're pretty young Sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty young. Um, Louisville, Kentucky. I have some. We hit my father's. Uh, his immediate older sister lived in Louisville with her family, so I have uh, memories of being there. And I played a lot of football when I was in school and started doing camping and things like that. Um, yeah, so just kind of early formative, you know, kind of things uh, bouncing around. So then, by the time y'all came back to McAllen. You said you were in sixth grade or so? Um, it would have been the summer before my sixth grade, yeah. Okay, and then did you pretty much go through the rest of your school years there yeah. or? Okay, do you wanna talk any more about, I, speaking of formative years, I mean, those are teenage years. Like what, what was McAllen like for you? Well, McAllen is really in this kind of peculiar area of the border where it's not exactly on the border. So it's about nine miles away from the border, but the city, I guess, built the bridge that's in the border town called Hidalgo. And it's a bridge that goes to Reynosa, Mexico. And so because they built the bridge way back, I don't know when the twenties or thirties, they uh, derive revenue from the toll. And so the schools were always really good. The public facilities, were really outstanding as a result of that. Um, I grew up with family in Mexico, so I was in Mexico every week, and I spent time literally fishing in the Rio Grande River. I swam that river from Mexico to the United States and back to Mexico. Yes. Uh, so I have a familiarity with the, the region. I, you know, did a lot of camping in those days and got, uh, you know, in school, I was playing sports and then started, uh, you know, getting involved in the debate team and things like that and mm. getting exposed to reading and just, you know, kind of realizing that, um, you know, that, that you have to, that you have to kind of craft your life and ideas and learning are a big part of it. My, my parents were always big supporters of, 
education and books and all that stuff. Although neither of them went to the college, they both, you know, uh, they grew up in an era where graduating from high school was, you got a good education through that point in your uh, development. And so they were, uh, they were big believers in it. My sister and my brother and I all graduated from law school. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, were, was there ever a time maybe in high school or, or in, in any of these years you're talking about, cause you said sports and, and debate or like a more kind of mindful uh, pursuit. Were they ever in conflict or was it just things that you enjoyed doing? They were in conflict at one point. Um, I was really into playing football. And at the time, um, my, I remember the first period of uh, school in the ninth grade was in supposed to be in an athletics class. So you would practice in the morning and then practice after school because this is you know, Texas football. This is serious. Got it. Yeah. And uh, I accidentally got put into this elective of debate, which I wanted to be in, but not for that period. And so I spent like two weeks like desperate this class so I could go with my football pals, you know, yeah, on the field. And finally, I just gave up on it because I liked the class and it kind of was a turning point in my life, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, who knows, sliding doors, but it's hard to imagine you as a jock. <laughs> well, I might have won a Heisman Trophy, you never know. You never know. What position did you play? Or uh, I played uh, quarterback. I also played uh, defensive cornerback. Um, you know, at that point, I wasn't uh, a starting quarterback because I was too young. But uh, I have memories of I was like the third string quarterback at, the point, at that point. And they would bring me in to uh, practice the defensive line's pass rush. Okay. And I would be the quarterback so that if they tackled me, they wouldn't be injuring their starter. <laughs> <laughs> so I became a very good player at throwing the ball while moving backwards. <laughs> so, like hot potatoes, right? right. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Actually, this is a true story. I got so good at it that I, I actually would sometimes get put into a game just to throw a short like five to 10 yard pass and then get pulled out of it because, you know, I, at practice, I mean, I would do this 60 times, you know, and get tackled, you know, 40 times, but I just got really good at avoiding the, the pass rush to make this one play. So. Wow. So you were part of that Friday night lights, Texas high school football. Briefly, briefly. I mean, because yeah. I don't have to tell you, you and I know this world, but for a lot of people listening, they might think it's just a thing on TV. It's like, no, no, no. It's real. It's a it, real world, It's yeah. a it's a it's a culture. It's a it's a phenomenon. Well, I was playing football as a kid at uh, like, you know, tackle football at the age of six years old with like oh, yeah. eight year olds. And so it was a thing I did growing up, you know, constantly. And sometimes I even played on two teams. I'd play on a school team and then go to the YMCA and play on a team there. And, you know, it was that kind of, that kind of thing. Yep. And did you play any other sports or enjoy any other sports? I tried, I tried a little baseball. I tried a little basketball, but really didn't have any talent for it. Played soccer a little bit. I tried to try them all. So, um, tennis, so I tennis. Yeah. So going back to when it sounds like at, at some point in high school, de 
debate or or that kind of thing like kind of kind of took started taking precedent when, when was that it was uh, my freshman year so okay. you know but but you know junior high was a lot of football and i had started uh getting involved in the debate team in like seventh grade of course at that age of development you're struggling articulating some pretty basic ideas because you've just never spoken in front of people and just, I don't know, navigating the nuances of these issues is really challenging at that age. So by ninth grade, somewhere in that, you know, that uh, first year, the first semester or whatever, I, I realized I, I wasn't going to be a football player. To your point, you know, I'm not like, I wasn't big enough to be a, 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 a great football player. And I didn't like lifting weights. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't mind running. I didn't mind push-ups sit-ups, whatever. I hated lifting weights. So okay. uh, it wasn't going to happen for me. Yeah. So I'm assuming you kept going with debate throughout high school. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then did that influence uh, your decision not only to go to college, but, but where you ended up going to college? Did that have anything to do with it? I don't know if it influenced where I went. Um, you know, I was graduating from a public high school where still a majority of the kids were not going to go to college. Hmm. And I happened to have some friends in a neighboring town of Edinburgh, Texas. And um, one of uh, the older brothers of a friend was going to Harvard. And uh, so he had some applications because he really wanted to go, I think, to Princeton. Mm -hmm. And he had an application to Columbia that he did not intend on filling out because Columbia was in Harlem and he had some idea that that was a negative thing. I didn't know what Harlem was and uh, had never been to New York and filled out the application with some other applications that I had, mostly to local local schools. University of Texas was probably oh. where I would have gone otherwise. My alma mater. Um, yeah, and, um, and I would have been perfectly happy there, but I got into Columbia and, and that's where I ended up going. There was one one kid I remember speaking to in, in McAllen, Texas, who went to Columbia, who encouraged me not to go there. Hmm. Uh, I think I saw him on campus one time, but anyway, I didn't I didn't take his advice. What uh, what was your decision? Do you remember what or what inform what informed it? Um, versus you know staying a little a little closer, especially not knowing a whole lot about New York. Or Columbia. You know, it's it's really hard to um, to conjure that up. I mean, I yeah. I think I was probably drawn more to the city than I was to the school. Here's this chance to be in this big city, and and let's 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 see what it's like. Um, you know, I got there. It was it was a pretty big culture shock. Um, from you know, I, I mean, I you know, certainly had never been on a subway. I'd never seen a bagel before. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, right. about, um, you know, pita bread, you know, just anything, you just no exposure to stuff. I was primarily eating Mexican food and, and kind of basic, basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And there weren't, you know, kind of exotic restaurants of any kind or any, any kind of metropolitan. It wasn't a big town. I think, uh, I think the, the biggest, tallest building in my hometown was like three stories tall. And, and they had just built at first tower, actually, maybe a couple of years before. So it's also just a very different 
moment in history, right? Er, early 80s, I'm guessing, mid, mid to early. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, you know, back then there weren't, there were chains for sure, but if you're from a place, I, 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 I can't remember in Fort Worth being a kid in the late 80s, I didn't know what a bagel was. Like th there were certain things where New York had a lot of that stuff just by virtue of the folks who live there and have lived there historically, but it's like, go anywhere outside of a, a big urban area like that. And yeah, I mean, and I remember uh, a friend asked me to buy, to buy her a scone. I didn't know what a scone was. I was going to the cafe. I had no idea what that was, you know, things like yep. that. You just, yep. uh, you know, it's, 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 anyway, funny memories. So did you, uh, did you stay, you know, a four year or, or so, like, did you stay at Columbia through the time you graduated or? I was there four years. Um, okay. In the summers, I, I worked in uh, camping kind of uh, for the Boy Scouts. I was doing, I worked in Maine one summer and up in Minnesota and Canada, oh, wow. guiding, guiding trips. And, um, uh, you know, I, I uh, double majored in uh, political theory and comparative literature, Spanish. And I just, um, you know, I just took a ton of classes every, every semester. So I probably graduated with, without going to summer school, I probably had an extra year and a half, two years extra with no testing or anything. I mean, I was just always taking 24 units of credit and wow. uh, some graduate courses. And I just had some professors that were mentors who were just wonderful teachers who really got me into to, to reading and uh, literature and to Marxism and things like that, ideas I hadn't been exposed to before. Any of those folks uh, still in touch today or? Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm friends with uh, Leonard Davis, who was an important teacher. He was, a, he had studied with um, Edward Said. He was in that circle. And he mm -hmm. later wrote a memoir about growing up with, uh, his parents were deaf. Uh, although he has a uh, hearing uh, ability and, uh, you know, real poignant memoir about that. Um, mm -hmm. There was a, a fellow named Jack Jacobs that I remember quite fondly. He was also teaching at, um, uh, I think it was John Jay College. You know, they're just some great, great professors. Okay. And then, uh, so you graduate from Columbia. What was it? Walk us through getting from Columbia to Stanford, correct? Yeah, so- For law schools, right? Yeah, I sort of, um, I, I, I thought at the time that I would be very interested in maybe teaching and maybe getting a PhD in um, political science or something like that, but I wasn't that good with languages. I didn't know German or French, and I just kind of thought I would never be really that good at it if I didn't have those languages. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, law school seemed like a relatively easy thing to do. And I thought, well, let me just go get that out of the way and see if I like it. Maybe I think relatively, I, relatively is the operative word there. I've never yeah. heard so well, I mean, It's three years. You don't have to write a thesis. I'm thinking like this, this is no big deal. Right. For four years. Right. So, yeah. Um, kind of a similar story. Someone uh, had no intention of um, going to the West Coast. A, a girlfriend of mine at the time actually was 
had applied to, you know, all the top schools on the East Coast. And uh, I mean, it, you know, looking back on it, uh, obviously that relationship was not going to last if I was applying to the West Coast and she was uh, going to stay in the East Coast. But uh, she had an application to Stanford um, and uh, I applied. I also applied to Berkeley. I didn't get into Berkeley, but I got into Stanford. And um, it was like, hey, I've never been to California. I was uh, just going to ask, kind of like Harlem, you're, you're like, there's this place. Yeah. I'll, I'll apply to go there and spend three years at least. And I didn't visit. Yeah. And I had a friend, I had a couple of friends that once they learned I had gotten into the school were like just adamant I had to go to school at Stanford. And I was thinking Chicago or staying at Columbia. Um, and uh, they were they were so adamant that it made me really kind of pause and reflect and really think about the West Coast. And, and then I really liked that Stanford was on the semester system. The other schools I was considering were on the quarter system. And I thought I'd rather take exams twice a year than three times a year. Right on. And that had a lot to do with it. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask the same question when we get to San Francisco, but what were some of your first impressions the first time you did come? Like, did, did, that first trip, did you kind of go straight to Palo Alto or what was that like? I went straight to Palo Alto and I remember thinking, oh my God, I would not have come here if I had visited. <laughs> I was just overwhelmed by this like non-urban kind of thing, this whole, you know, all the trees. And I mean, it's beautiful, but I, it was hard to fathom that I was going to be spending that much time there. It seemed very suddenly rural. Right. Um, obviously compared to, you know, Columbia where you're stepping out on Broadway or, or what have you. Right. So in those four years you had gotten pretty used to w one of the most urban. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just I mean, dynamic, you know, you're, and, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's a patch quilt of all these little neighborhoods and you don't think about it because so large of a city, but you constantly run into friends in different places. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very, it feels very small neighborhood-ish, but there's so much going on and it's so dynamic that it's big and small at the same time. Stanford just seemed like, you know, summer camp or something. It was like, really felt very different. Yeah. I, I don't want to jump ahead, but so in your, in your time at Stanford, did, did you end up doing three years? Yeah. If, if there's anything from, the, from that time down there that you want to share, by all means, but I want to hear for sure eventually your first time to come up to San Francisco. A, a good friend of mine was visiting from Columbia and we came up to San Francisco uh, and we stayed at a friend of his place. He, uh, he was staying, he was working as a doorman or a bouncer or something. The friend was uh, at a club south of Market and he had an apartment over on uh, uh, Page um, in Buchanan, somewhere down there. Uh, I think it's John Muir uh, School is on the block. Okay, so Lower Hate. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that was, I spent the first night there uh, in San Francisco. And uh, this would have been mid 80s or so? It would have been uh, 87. 87, okay. Yeah, and, and so it just became a place uh, that I would come visit. I spent my, I'm trying to think if it was my first or second summer in law school, living nearby where I live now. I'm at Hayes between Scott and Divisadero, and I spent a summer at Scott 
and Oak. Oh, and right there. Yeah. yeah, just a couple blocks away. Do you yeah. remember back some of those first times spending time here, especially in contrast with Palo Alto? Did it feel better? <laughs> Did it feel more like something, you know, like like New York, like, you, you know, that you had been more accustomed to and, and I'm assuming you you ended up liking and appreciating? Oh, did it, did San Francisco, yeah, San Francisco felt more like that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to recall, though, when I was in New York, there were a lot of people that had an idea of California that was what you would probably conjure up more as like Southern California, the idea of beach towns and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So there weren't a lot of New Yorkers interested in, in California when I was there, at least. And so that was definitely not my experience coming to San Francisco and, you know, just south of Market, Hate Street, uh, Mission Street, there were just so much interesting music happening and all kinds of stuff. The streets were definitely grittier back then. Um, you know, and it, I mean, eventually I, I was living in, uh, I spent a lot of time living in the Mission District and um, eventually made it over to the Western Edition here in 2000. So okay, um, so but but while you were still at Stanford, did you kind of start to feel yourself being drawn to San Francisco? Yeah, I spent I spent one summer working for the California Appellate Project doing death penalty appeals. Okay, and so I was living here at the time, and um, you know I had friends in the East Bay also, and started uh, going to places like Moe's Bookstore. So I knew some of the guys that worked there. Wow. Um, in fact, uh, Jonathan Lethem, the novelist, I met him. He worked behind the counter at Moe's. Okay. A good friend of his and Will Amato. And, um, yeah, just a lot of, lot of, lot of great uh, people there. So what year was it that you officially made the move? Uh, oh, and Bruno Ruland, just another name popping in my head. Uh, so I, 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 uh, I moved to Oakland 1990 for a year. Because okay. I, I was trying to get a job as a public defender, and um, San Francisco suddenly was hiring, and I and I landed one of six jobs after a drought in hiring, and um, you know they, there were hundreds of applicants apparently, and I started in San Francisco '91, and I was living on Albion Street right there with the Albion Bar. Again, a lot of folks listening to this will probably know that the the mission is one of many neighborhoods that were so different back then. Do you want to talk about well maybe maybe you know maybe before the that first dot com wave started to to gentrify? Yeah, I mean I mean it was it's just hard to I mean it really just was grittier and I mean, you know, there was a lot more of the presence of Central American and Mexican businesses, you know, on the corner of Albion there was a little Salvadorian um, bakery. The Adobe Bookshop had just opened maybe a year or two earlier. Brian Bilby and Andrew McKinley were there. And, uh, you know, La Cumbre Taqueria was still there, places like that. Yeah. Um, I met the beat poet Jack Micheline at, um, at the Albion Bar and would later publish a book with him of his poetry. And, you know, um, there, were, there were folks like, you know, I met Jack Hirschman in the early 90s in North Beach in a bar, at, you know, not Specs, but um, what's the other one right now? Vesuvio? Yeah, Vesuvio's. Yeah. But, you know, I remember being with my, um, 
my roommate at the time, who was also a public defender, we were later law partners together, Whitney Lay, and we were coming out of um, uh, a burrito place, and literally there was a robbery happening there, and we, it wasn't, we sort of intervened to break up this fight where these guys were going through somebody's pockets, but it was like, hey, cut it out, leave them alone, you know? It was all almost like slow motion, uh, lo-fi assault, and yet it was both like serious and like, hey, shoo, go away, and it was right. over, you know? Uh, right. I had a car at the time, an old Mercedes, the reverse had gone out in it. I didn't, I didn't have the money to fix it. So it was a bit dangerous to drive. And then eventually I wasn't able to lock the door anyway. And there was a fellow that started sleeping in the backseat of my car at night. So that's a funny <laughs> episode because finally I just gave up and was like, gave him the keys and said, Hey, it's street cleaning. Can you move the car for me? <laughs> he did that a few times, but then he got arrested. He was on parole. He got arrested and the car got towed. And I got a notice that, you know, my car was up for sale. It was that kind of scene, you know. That was Matt Gonzalez. Join us again Thursday for part two, when Matt will share more stories from his 30 years in San Francisco. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. The show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, we have nearly 150 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can... Subscribe, rate, and review our show so that we can reach even more folks. And if you'd like to drop us an old-fashioned email, we'd love it. The address is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. podcast is a proud member of the bff.fm podcast network learn more at podcast.bff.fm bff.fm best frequencies forever